Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. G'day everyone and welcome to JOSPT Insights for 2024. As we prepare for a big year of JOSPT Insights interviews, we're easing you into 2024 by recapping a few of our most loved and most listened to episodes from 2023. These are wonderful chats with some of the leading clinician scientists in the musculoskeletal rehabilitation field. They're the episodes you don't want to miss, which is why we really wanted to replay them for you now. It is such a thrill to hear how much you all love the JOSPT Insights podcast. Thank you for all of the support. We really love making the podcast and sharing with you the thoughts of all the fantastic guests who join us on JOSPT Insights. Thanks to them. And of course, a very big thanks to all of you. Okay, here's today's episode. Did you know that calf injuries are one of the most common soft tissue injuries in team sports? So how comfortable do you feel assessing and managing calf pain, especially diagnosing and progressing a program to help someone get back to their sport? Today, Dr. Seth O'Neill joins us to blend the latest science in calf injury with high-level clinical reasoning. You'll get something out of today's chat whether you're beginning in your clinical career or whether you're looking for suggestions for advanced clinical practice. Seth is a certified tendon geek from the University of Leicester in the UK, where he's the Director of Research for the School of Healthcare. Seth's clinical and research work focuses on tendinopathies and muscle injuries, particularly the calf and the Achilles tendon, and he still works clinically with elite and recreational athletes alike. Okay, here's today's episode. Dr. Seth O'Neill, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thanks very much for having me, Claire. Looking forward to chatting to you today. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you too. And we're fortunate to have you on the podcast today to talk about calf injuries. I want to start by talking not about the Achilles tendon. I know, shock, horror, completely, what is she doing to the podcast? I would really like to start with the soleus muscle. And can you tell us, Seth, what role does the soleus play in the calf complex? The soleus is probably the, the main locomotive muscle of the whole body. That's really the, the crux of it. And Normally when we get sort of taught at university, whether we're physios, medics or whatever, we get told it's a postural muscle. But actually what we now know from the the research is that it's a hugely powerful propulsive muscle. It produces both vertical force and uh, a horizontal force that far exceeds any other lower limb muscle, particularly for steady state running. When we're going really fast, flat out sprinting, then some of the proximal muscles will, will lift up and produce very big forces. And that's why we see hamstring injuries in sprinters. But the calf works phenomenally hard every single step you take, whether we're going from a steady state jog right up to a flat out sprint, or even with accelerations. There's some new data come out in the last year or two showing that sprinting out blocks, that the calf muscle, soleus particularly itself, will produce around 10 times body weight as an internal force. Really, really important muscle. Now, I am going to bring the Achilles tendon back in here. We can't really get too far into a podcast about foot and ankle and the calf without talking about the Achilles tendon. And Seth, I'm interested to know what role do you see the soleus playing in tendinopathy, in particular in Achilles tendinopathy? I guess it goes back a little bit to what my PhD was on, and that was really looking at which of the two calf muscles, um, so gastrocnemius, soleus, forgetting about the rest of the smaller dinky ones, 
but um, which of the two muscles were most involved really from a, a perspective of deficits when you've got an Achilles tendon problem. And the research we did showed that the soleus seemed to be most uh, affected and had the biggest deficits when you develop an Achilles tendon problems. And really that makes a good bit of sense when you think about where we commonly see tendon changes. They're often on the, the ventral surface, the deep surface of the Achilles. And actually, anatomical studies show that that relates to the soleus muscle itself. The fascicles continue all the way down from the soleus into the Achilles and right the way into then the, the insertion on the calcaneum. So it, it links with the site of tendinopathy and it links with the main propulsive muscle. And Achilles problems predominantly affect runners. Uh, they're the biggest group. About 50% of runners will develop an Achilles problem in their lifetime. Talking about Achilles tendinopathy is a really nice segue into calf injuries more broadly. So can you tell us about how common are calf injuries in sport? It's really varied and, and the data I think's um been missing in some sports. So it's often professional sport where we have good data on the sort of incidence rates of it. Football and rugby, calf injuries are a real big problem. Fourth most common injury in football and second most common or frequent injury in training in rugby. And then when we look at runners, it's, it's harder to discern, particularly recreational runners. But what we do know is it tends to impact the older athlete. So it's not something we see in adolescents, by and large. We might see some tendon disorders in those groups, but again, less common. We certainly see it as people hit their later 20s and early 30s if they're still continuing with professional sport. And then in recreational runners, it's often the, the person my sort of age in their 40s who goes out for their plod and, and develops calf problems as a consequence of doing tennis infrequently, squash infrequently, or running infrequently. And probably the key is about infrequent training. So where running is the key feature, field sports particularly, our data suggests calf pain is a, a prospective risk factor for developing Achilles problems as well. Now, for our American listeners, I should say that when you say football, you're, you're referring to soccer, which is fine. You can continue to say football. Our listeners are sophisticated and they'll they'll get it. But just to make sure that people aren't thinking of American football when you say football. And Seth, I'm interested, which muscle is most is more injured? Is it the soleus or the gastroc? It is soccer that we're talking about um, when we're talking about football. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have Aussie rules or American rules uh, football over here, but it's similar to rugby league in terms of the demands of it. And calf injuries are quite common in those, but it's not robust data. In terms of which muscles most commonly involved, you go back five, 10 years, everyone would have told you it was gastrocnemius uh, and that all calf injuries are gastroc related. Actually, the data that's come from um, Latrobe has shown clearly in Aussie rules footy that actually it is the, the soleus that's most common. So around about 80% of all injuries are soleal. We've been recently analysing some of the Premiership rugby data in the UK, in England, uh, and that's shown that the soleus seems to be more common as well. And we've got some FA data to look at it as well, and it, around 80%, 85% of all calf injuries are soleal there as well. Ten years ago, you wouldn't image or you might just use ultrasound and you'd identify this gastroc as an injury, but actually you didn't then pick up the underlying injury in the soleus as well. And nowadays in pro uh, professional sport, where imaging is done all the time and certainly maybe overdone, you pick up a lot more injuries and that's how we now know the soleus is predominantly the, the muscle involved. And does the site or the grade of the injury matter? A lot of debates about this. And I, I flip between the two camps of it being uh, important or not. So we've got some really 
very strong data from people like Carlos Pedrot in Barcelona, who's published a lot of the calf injury literature. And, and Carlos's work has clearly shown that the grade of injury and the site of the injury with which of the intramuscular tendons is involved. So Soleus has three, it has a, a medial, a lateral and a central intramuscular tendon. Depending on where it's injured and the grade seems to influence the recovery period. So in the higher grades, like a 3C, where you've got tendon involvement, will produce much longer time loss. The problem we've got with some of the data sets is, unfortunately, it'll be mixed groups. So it won't just be elite sports. And I think certainly if we look at elite sports, that really seems to come through that it is a longer time loss. And there's a lot of discrepancy in the hamstring literature and calf literature about what we mean by elite sports and what that really involves. So that's some of the differences. Yeah, and I think the other thing that has come through certainly in the hamstring literature is this idea of is it the muscular intramuscular tendon or the musculotendinous junction that's the site and and what sort of impact is that going to have on prognosis and the treatment choices that you might make? Can you tell us a little bit about how you think about that for the calf? Yeah, so if it's muscle fibers, I would often think about the, the problem as a, a pure muscle issue and we're trying to res- restore muscle function and muscle control and that will give us problems with steady state running and and slow runs as well as sort of the the quicker runs but when the tendons involved we tend to find a much bigger problem with short duration impacts on the floor so where the stretch shortened cycles part and parcel of this so faster runs hopping changing direction activities like that and that's where i think we need to be much more cautious with those quicker movements shorter time duration on the floor um, when we're looking at rehab. But there's not strong evidence to substantiate that. It's just that clinical experience at the moment uh, of working with a, a variety of athletes. And so there's a great question or a, f- a great few research questions there for someone who's thinking about starting a PhD. Let's segue into treatment now and how you might approach managing calf injuries. What are your top clinical tips for managing calf injuries, Seth? You've, you've alluded to a couple there, but let's start to pull it together in, in terms of, the, of constructing a treatment program. The biggest thing for me with any patient that we ever deal with would be about education. Uh, and this relates to whether they're a recreational athlete, whether they're a pro, they need to understand what the calf does because then they can understand why we might want to load them in a particular way. And this isn't boring them to death with lots of complex understanding. This is just simple stuff. This is key locomotive muscle. This is the typical outputs that it generates. And then moving on to actually go, well, if we test you and we do this type of test, an output of whatever times body weight relates to an internal stress that is similar to those demands on field. And that gives us a market for getting you back. So Simply put, we would educate them to understand what's wrong, what's happened in the timeframes, and then we need to quantify their capacity at that moment. And I'm a big believer of quantification, and this is where I think in path and Achilles' work, we've had problems because we haven't had good measures or metrics that are useful in return to play or even in just differentiating symptomatic people from healthy people. So what we'll look at with our injured cohort with a calf problem are a simple static isometric test to look at maximum force. We normally do it in a bent knee position. Paper's just finally been accepted on the validation and reliability of that protocol, so we'll be out soon. And that basically should produce around about twice body weight as a force output, 
We've got very big data sets now on nearly 400 elite rugby players, 160 elite soccer or football players. So we've got good normative data of what the target should be. Twice body weight force would equate to an internal load of between eight and 12 times body weight within the tendon or the calf muscles. And that's the, the typical outputs we have during locomotion on field. We try and quantify, but the isometric is a, a sort of cheap, dirty test. What we've then got to look at is in more problematic calf injuries or, or longer histories of recurrence, we'd also look at isokinetic testing and it gets a bad press. We used it for my Achilles um, PhD. We know what normal runners can produce. And when we've been using this in football and rugby, we've been finding that a lot of these recurrent players have very, very poor neuromuscular performance, not just peak force out but their trace curves will be all over the shop. They might not be able to generate force in a particular position of the range. And you miss that if you just do an ISO test. So it's really using some formal testing. But of course, then just actually looking at your return to play markers, your key performance indicators on field, what their capacity is, what their performance is at running. Can they tolerate a steady state jog of 400 meters at 50% of their max sprint speed? But we need to be careful with anything that involves accelerations because it's huge calf demands. And that's the bit that people have misunderstood. And often in field-based sports, people will do shuttle runs as part of the rehab. So they'll run across the width of the pitch or something similar. And this repeated excel and decel is massive calf loads. And so they miss that that is actually going to overload that individual and cause a problem. I think that's really important that people grasp both the players, the, the athlete themselves, and the, the clinicians working in that area. So we tend to have three targets we try and get people to achieve as part of that return. And that will be the ability to withstand peak loads. So somewhere around eight or 10 body weights of a force through the, the muscle and the tendon, the accumulative stress. So if you think of you or I going for a 10K run, I'm 100 kilos weight my soleus will produce something like 2 million kilos of force through one leg for a 10K run. And we've got to make sure that the player or athlete returns to that capacity level prior to going back. We're trying to build the peak stress, the accumulative stress, but also the, the strain rate, the, this quicker, shorter duration on the floor. So it's often simply measured in body weights per second. So a hop or a sprint will be much more body weights per second than a walk or a heel raise. There's no magic exercise here. There's not like a, a particular mode of contraction that works wonderfully and is the, the key go-to here. This is about building capacity in a normal neuromuscular function that has to involve isotonic muscle contractions, so concentric, eccentric. Eccentric is the biggest load. That's where the injury happens if you look at the mechanism of calf or Achilles injuries. So it needs to be rehabbed. And also isometrics are a way of building some capacity and measuring it now, Seth, I want to pick up on this idea of returning to accelerating and decelerating because that's kind of a hard thing to progress. So let's talk a bit about progressing a rehabilitation program, particularly making those what can sometimes I think seem like big steps from running in a straight line, doing your gym program that's very focused on the muscle function to then getting that back to the, to what might look a bit like the sport and then even to that much higher level of the stretch sort, shortening cycle and, and particularly that acceleration, deceleration where, as you said, that's where you're getting those huge loads on the calf. So how do you approach planning that and then executing it with an athlete and keeping them safe at the same time? It's that sort of tightrope, isn't it? 
It, it is, and it, it's hitting that magic Goldilocks zone in the middle where it's just the right amount. We don't want to under-prepare them or over-prepare them. We've got to get it just right. And there isn't a magic formula for this. It's really my go-to would try to be build capacity with the accumulative stress because it's easy to build steady state capacity. And I'd want to get the athlete back to sort of a, a normal distance that they cover during a training session. So we'd stagger that build up and we'd break down where they need to be in an approximate time frame that we might have and work backwards. It's not an easy thing to do by a long stretch. And I don't think people should beat themselves up about it. You've nearly just got to plump for a particular starting block and see how the person reacts. So I would always look at walking ability first, what their step count is, the 20 sort of three hours, 22 hours a day that they're not with the squad if they're an elite person, because that's often missed. So if they've got a family or a dog that they walk or they do other activities like golf or something, what's their step count there? Build up the step count with walking and or jogging. And then what we've got to do is start to add in some run durations. So I'd often use whatever their pitch or field is that they play on. Okay, well, let's do a steady state run the full length once we know they can do a steady state run per se. And we can add in this build up to whatever their speed that their run is at each end. So we, we build in that acceleration going up from sort of a stop to 50% of their max sprint speed. But ultimately, at some stage, we've got to go for a formal, right, we're doing acceleratory work now. And I'd normally do that whilst they're moving already, rather than from a flat start. The flat start is much more the risky, the loads are greater. And we can cover that gap by looking at gym-based loading, like hopping or jumping forwards that will use a load that is somewhere in between the, the peak load that you get with a flat-out acceleration but it's also higher than something as simple as a heel rise. That's all we've got to do is understand how it differs from a load perspective and build those in, whether that's on field or whether it's in the gym. I would always try and do on-field work concurrently with their gym-based stuff. I'm not a fan of pulling them off on-field work totally. Uh, that whole thing of meeting the player where they are and also recognising the group around them and, and kind of meeting that whole environment where, where it is and tailoring your approach to suit. Seth, you talked about the gym versus on the field. How does a heavy, slow resistance training program transfer to those faster movements that are on the field? Can I sort of count on the heavy, slow resistance training that I'm doing in the gym as transferring over to what I might ask someone to do on the field? Or do I need to think of those as very separate things and think about a gym program and then what I do on the field? It's a lot of the debate of most strength and conditioning coaches and, and sort of people working in that field will go, well, the two are totally distinct. We can't utilize them. But actually, according to sort of the, the research around the neuromuscular strategies we use for eccentrics, Heavy slow, you use the same neural strategy, both from a central and a peripheral drive, as you would do for the fast stretch shorten cycle component. And there's some nice work from people like James Debenham in Australia that's shown that actually doing heavy slow eccentrics for the calf improves your stretch shorten cycle as measured by hopping. So it clearly transfers over, even though we might deem this is slower speed and, and isn't going to be transferable. That's not the same for concentrics, though. Concentric work actually seems to be a very different neural pattern. We need to do fast and slow training. But for the eccentric, it seems to be the same. So there's good crossover. 
the heavy slow work is often non-painful and it's a really good way of building a capacity that actually improves the neural drive and develops strength but also the tissue capacity itself and they're, they're both targets we want we want better neural drive and strength as evolved by a hypertrophy but we also want tissue adaptation in the injured side that helps the healing process through mechanotransduction now, I think the magic question is when can I go back to sport or when when are you ready to clear the athlete for unrestricted sport? So what's the time frame for return to play after a calf injury, Seth? I'm always a pain about this one with people when I'm dealing with them. I say, look, I'm not going to give you a time frame and you can return when you can do it. There is not a time frame for this. We know from soft tissue healing, we might be sort of putting a six to 12 week sort of period on it. But ultimately, it's about hitting their requirements for that sport uh, and so we break down the sport into bite-sized chunks of going well you need to do this type of distance we need to do this type of speed you need to do this amount of x cells and d cells and in elite sports all the clubs have that gps data anyway and all we do is take that data and go right we've got to look at each of these aspects they are different and we try and build each one in gradually and don't just chuck them all in at one stage and wonder why we've broken the athletes again And I think that's the art and the science of clinical practice right there, Seth. And I'd like to finish by asking you to share with our more experienced colleagues, actually. So if someone's listening to us today saying, yeah, I feel pretty confident managing calf injuries. It's something I see quite frequently. What's your tip? What's one thing that you would like someone who feels more confident with calf injuries to think about the next time they're working with an athlete with a calf injury? What's something they may not have thought of, Seth? We've got to look at the positions that the athlete goes into on field. We're wonderful in the gym of doing these lovely, straight, perfect gym-based exercises. What we're terrible at is actually replicating the on-field positions. So we need to look at varying the the knee positions. Uh, We need to look at varying the the hip rotations. So we look at valgus and varus of the knee, essentially. We look at pronating or supinating the foot to stress the different fascicles within the calf and the Achilles. And this is one way that we can actually specifically load the injured side to get the adaptations we want in the injured zone. And it's the bit we've missed. So when people say we can't adapt tendons, they clearly do adapt, but actually nobody's ever really targeted the specific injured side by using these principles. And, and it works wonderfully well in practice. And we see both uh, Achilles adaptation using that approach, but also calf resolution where we've hit a bit of a brick wall. And it's often one of the things that squads and, and physios working with them, them or the SNC guys have missed as well. So that's one definite critical bit to throw in. Equally, we will also try and get people to look at positions like prowlers or sled pulls, because often in getting athletes, it's this acceleration out of blocks that they're coming up or in rugby where we work quite a lot, it's the scrum position. It's understanding what their legs are doing and their drive, which one they push with, basically, is what we're getting at. They're a prop who's the, the person at the front of us from on either side of it. They're the ones that get the most calf and Achilles injuries in rugby. And it's often their outer leg. And they're the legs that get calf or, or Achilles ruptures, actually, we tend to see a lot. And that's what started a lot of our research recently. And I think, as I alluded to earlier, that the mechanism of injury, that stepping back and working in there. And often athletes have... They know a position hurts them, a particular movement pattern, and they avoid it. But they haven't always told the coaching staff or the the medical teams. And that's another thing. So when I get asked to consult with squads, 
often that's the one thing we pick out straight away with the player. They just go, well, I don't do this because it hurts. Like, oh, that's it. We need to clear that movement, make that pain-free, work towards it and make it better. And then we've got a resolution. So again, they're, they're the big things, I think, that give us easy wins without actually making us think of a new miracle exercise. Seth, I think they're really great clinical tips that are not only applicable for calf injuries, but that idea of analysing the sport-specific components of movement, constructing a program that's going to replicate as much as you can those movements, and then thinking through what are the implications of the injury mechanism. That's a theme that is going to help us all, I think, help our athletes better. So Seth O'Neill, thanks so much for joining me on JOSPT Insights today to share these fantastic clinical tips and really bring the science and the art of clinical practice together. It's been wonderful listening. Thanks very much for having me, Claire. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Listener.